Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Three Course Politics. I'm Josh. And I'm Hills. And boy, do we have an episode for you today. I'm excited for this one. I really I really am. I'm excited for all of them, but I'm particularly excited for this one. Yeah, uh, we got a lot to cover. A lot of stuff's been happening. Uh, your appetizer, we're going to talk about the incoming cabinet picks from Joe Biden. For your entree, we're going to talk more about the election because you thought the election was over. Uh, but just like uh, Trump's multiple lawsuits, we still have things to talk about with the election. Josh, the election is never over. <laughs> ne- the election <laughs> is far from over, Hills. It will never, ever be over. Forever. <laughs> so we're going to go into the election some more. We're going to do a deep dive. We're going to talk about states and counties and people. Your uh, life under lockdown. We're going to talk about the vaccine. We haven't talked about COVID much because it's just so goddamn depressing. So we're going to talk about <laughs> the vaccines. <laughs> And uh, for your dessert, we're going to talk a little Trump post twenty uh, January 20th, 2021. Things that Trump might be up to, different things he has planned, because unfortunately he's not going away. So uh, we should talk about that. But first, have you subscribed? Uh, please do so now. It helps you get the episodes as soon as possible. All you have to do is go to your podcast, wherever you're listening to, and click the subscribe button. Leave us a written review. If we get five or more reviews, it will make the show turn up. So please write something about us. It will truly, truly help us out. Hills, anything else to add before we uh, get into our pre-dinner shot? Could someone just take Trump off our hands? Like, could he, like, get abducted by aliens and they were going to have to deal with him? Like, I don't know. Even if he goes to Florida or wherever, can he just, like, I don't know. I just want to stop hearing about him forever. I feel like even if aliens came and, and got Trump... They, they would return him instantly and be like, this guy won't shut the fuck up. <laughs> we can't deal with him. He's already caused three civil wars. Take him back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, unfortunately, we are here uh, to hear more about Trump uh, until the day that he dies. And Three Course Politics will be here to bring you all the crazy stuff that he says. Uh, and so speaking of of a crazy president. He is part of our pre-dinner shot question, which is coming up right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your pre-dinner shot. And today's question, so as of 8 p.m. Eastern time on Friday, December 11th, what is the win-loss count for Trump and the Republicans' post-election lawsuits? Let me say that again. As of 8 p.m. Eastern on Friday, December 11th, what is the win-loss count for Trump and the Republicans' post-election lawsuits? Hills, can I, t- can I take a guess at the percentage? Yeah, yeah, take a guess at the percentage. Is it less than 100? You're going to have to shoot way less than that. <laughs> so like 90%, 85%? If, we got, if he got 80 to 90%, it would be something of a miracle. So much lower than that. Spoiler alert, it's it's not high. <laughs> it's not high. And you may, uh, uh, when you, by the time you hear this podcast, you may know that his percentage has gone e- even lower. Uh, so, uh, but this is, a, this is a good question, Elsie. I, I think that uh, it, it ties nicely in, um, you know, what we've been talking about and the election and stuff. So it's a good question. Thank you. And we, we've been keeping count. Well, 
I got this number from someone else, but we've also been keeping count. Um, <laughs> and with that, keeping on keeping on counts, we've been also counting on Biden's cabinet as he rolls them out, and we're going to have that for you next. So for your appetizer today, we are going to talk Biden cabinet. Biden is slowly but surely uh, assembling his cabinet, and he has a number of posts out. Uh, we're not going to go through all of them, but I thought we would just hire some of the main ones to start with. Uh, so the chief of staff for Biden is going to be Ron Klain. He was the chief of staff when Biden was running for uh, president uh, in this campaign. He was also the the um, Ebola czar. So he he's worked in pandemics before. Uh, he's universally considered to be a pretty pretty good choice um, for chief of staff. And then also uh, another name uh, for Biden's White House staff is Jen uh, Paskey. I think that's pronounced that right. Jen Paskey. I think so. She's the press secretary. She's someone that I've heard the press is a big fan of. So you know, restoring faith in the press hills is is uh, not not a bad thing. No, it's not. And I was, I was pretty surprised about Jen just because, like, she was in the Obama the Obama administration. And, like, we heard a little bit about her, but it seemed like she, like, maybe she was in higher regard. But, I mean, both of these people, Ron Klain knows how to run this government. I mean, he was Biden's chief of staff when he was a VP. So, like, he knows he knows what he's doing. Like, these are people who, like, aren't just like, oh, I know a little bit. Like, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to move on now. To talking about the uh, Biden's economic team, and we're only going to mention one name, and that is Secretary of the Treasury um, is uh, Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is the former head of the Fed, and if if confirmed, she would be the first female Secretary of the Treasury. Hills, what are your thoughts on Janet Yellen? I'm surprised and not surprised. I didn't know that she was so high in the running, but if there's anyone who is able to juice up the economy and knows monetary and fiscal policy, it's going to be Janet Yellen, right? Like, (laughs) I mean, she's liberal. I mean, she's not progressive like Elizabeth Warren, but she's certainly not like a moderate treasury secretary. I mean, she she's firmly a a liberal brand of economics. So like, I I don't see how people are upset, uh, you know, why they're upset about this, unless you're a conservative. And I think that well, I've also heard that she has a very good relationship with the current head uh, of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell. So those two should work well together. And I think uh, it's I think rates in general, interest rates are going to be very, very low uh, for a long time. And um, I think that kind of helps stimulate the economy. So I'm looking forward to her. I think she'll do a very nice job. And it's cool to have the first uh, female head of the uh, Treasury. So. Let's move on now. We're going to talk a little bit about Biden's uh, national security team. Okay, so uh, I'm going to run through some names, Hills, and then you can give us uh, some thoughts. So Secretary of State is Anthony Blinken. You have Secretary of Defense, General Lloyd Austin. And if he's confirmed, he would be the first African-American to be head of the DOD. Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, who is who is a first generation of he, he was son of uh, immigrants? He is also uh, Hispanic, and he'd be the first Hispanic director for Homeland Security. Avril Haines is director of National Intelligence. If she's confirmed, she would be the first female to be director of the National Intelligence, first woman to do it. John Kerry is back 
in the government. He is the special presidential envoy on climate. And uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield is ambassador to the UN. Hales, give me your general thoughts on Biden's national security team. If you're looking for professionals who, government professionals who know what they're doing and know their agencies and know their work and are not subject to scandals, then you've got your picks right here. <laughs> what, what's showing to me is, is a couple of things. One is that Biden is, you know, using Obama administration officials that have done really good work and have gotten the job done. So there's no learning curve for them. And it shows that he just wants to hit the ground running. And number two, you notice a lack of like political appointees almost, right? Like yeah. senators, governors, et cetera, et cetera, which the senator piece is probably because of the tight margin because Democrats screwed up <laughs> the Senate elections. <laughs> but also that like, you know, he's not he's not looking to do favors, which he's just looking to get the job done, which, you know, may or may not hurt him in the end. But I think in terms of for the taxpayers and for people, you should be very confident in these people. You know, the idea of that a Hispanic immigrant is running the Homeland Security Department and is in charge of ICE and border security makes so much sense because he's gone through that immigration process. He has an idea of what it's like. And so why wouldn't you put someone who has empathy and, and, and understands what, you know, the challenge and the sacrifice families make to immigrate to the United States. Why, why not put him in charge of that, um, that you know, ICE and, 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 and the border crossing? I think I think it's just, it's sensible picks. Um, I think that's kind of the theme that Biden is going for. Uh, for other cabinet members, uh, I want to highlight one, Javier Basara, who is the current uh, attorney general in California. He is going to be secretary of health and uh, health and human services. So he's someone who I think has gotten a little bit of pushback because they're saying what, um, you know, what, what qualities does he have? He's not a doctor or anything, uh, but he has played a critical role in making sure that Obamacare stays part of the land. So I think you want to have someone who has fought for Obamacare, understands the importance of Obamacare in the health and human services. Hills, what are your thoughts on um, Javier Basara? Yeah, I was a little, I was definitely surprised about him just because you're right. I mean, you make really good points and it's definitely why Biden chose him is because he's advocated for, I mean, he was in the the House of Representatives. Like he, he knows and advocates for the uh, Affordable Care Act. And so he'll know how to like, you know, work the laws and all that stuff. I, I just was perplexed. Like you usually choose someone maybe with more of a, some more background in health, but I guess you don't need to, as long as you have a, a, you know, competent lawyer or someone who knows the law on the top of the department and has a, you know, some health policy in it, I guess it's good. I mean, he's going to be great. So there's nothing I'm, I'm not worried. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We only have to talk about, about these uh, other appointments. Just, just to mention them, secretary of house and urban development is uh, Marsha Fudge, who is a current representative from Ohio getting that that role tom vilsack is secretary of agriculture he was had the same job under uh, obama and then you have dennis mcdonough as secretary of veterans affairs um someone who i don't think has a lot of experience with veterans but he has a good idea of, of how to run things and the veterans affairs just needs someone to come in and fix all the problems and he has that responsibility um the last one I, w- I want to mention, Hills, is uh, the director of the CEC, who is Dr. Rochelle Walensky. 
Mm. Uh, she, I believe she's up in Harvard, uh, Massachusetts. Um, she is someone who I've heard when she was nominated as director of the CDC, people in the medical um, field uh, breathe a sigh of relief. I think she is very, very well respected. I think she's done a lot of work with HIV and AIDS as well. Um, so my guess is that Biden's thinking is let's have someone who's a good lawyer who can help protect people's health care as part of health and human services. And we'll let the doctors who are, who are part of the CDC and the COVID-19 task force and Anthony Fauci, we'll let them deal with the actual, you know, medical side of this, which is not a bad strategy. It, it is so refreshing to have someone who's competent and, and like a competent health person during a global pandemic. We have seen what someone who is not a real, like, good, competent doctor and administrator can do during the literally meltdown of what you need them to be there for, right? We're having a global yeah. pandemic, and the, and Redfield, as the CDC, is totally under Trump's thumb. He has no idea what he's doing. He's a Christian science doctor. Like, not anything against that, but still, like, I don't know. It just, it taints, he's got a checkered past about those things. And it's like, can we have someone who's competent, who knows, you know, <laughs> how to evaluate medical science and it put them in charge of something that is important to combating a deadly disease. Probably we should. So I'm very happy about this. And um, yeah, I just want to underscore again that, that Biden has not chosen a lot of political picks here. So right. I think that's something to look out for um, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, you look, you, you compare Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky's career up against Redfield. I mean, you know, Dr. Uh, Rulens or Dr. Walensky uh, worked at Johns Hopkins. Um, she uh, has, uh, you know, she currently works at Mass General. She's dealt and treated patients who are on the, the, the front lines. Um, she is uh, heavily involved in all types of infectious diseases. And she just has a really good idea of what she, like, she knows what she's doing, right? And so it's just nice like you said, that you have someone who, here's a doctor who has dealt with infectious diseases, has dealt with things like AIDS and HIV, and, uh, you know, she works at a huge hospital. Matt uh, Mastgen is, like, a major hospital. She's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She also studied at Johns Hopkins. And this is a very, very smart and well-educated person that has personally fought COVID-19 on the front lines and will help out the Biden team and help out the, the, you know, the American public. I think it's a really, really good pick and I could not be happier so far with most of what I'm seeing for, uh, for uh, Biden's picks. So. It sounds like you're, you're, she's the person that you want in that role. I mean, she oh, absolutely. seems like she was made for that role. Absolutely. So uh, what stands out about these picks so far? So one is diversity. There are a lot of diverse people. You have the first woman who uh, to be nominated for Secretary of Treasury. You have the first African American uh, potentially for uh, to be head of the DoD. You know Biden's got an all female press uh, press uh, room and a communications team, right? Like you know there there it's a very diverse cabinet compared to Trump's cabinet, which was all which was majority white men and Ben Carson. So, um, <laughs> you know, you have some diversity there. Um, as Hill said, you also have competent people. You have competent, experienced people. 
like Hill said, Biden's not looking to pay favor. He's looking for people who can get the job done. Um, and it seems like these people are going to be doing the speaking for Biden. We become so accustomed to, in the Trump administration, Trump getting out there and saying what he wants to, people kind of standing in the background. Biden's going to let the experts speak. He's going to let them talk to the American people, tell them what's happening. These people are experts in their field. And Biden will take a more, you know, macro level, right? We're going to let these people talk to, you know, these secretaries and do their jobs. And Biden is going to be, I don't think you're going to see him a whole, a whole ton. Like you've been seeing Trump every day. Uh, the last thing, Hills, before I get your comment is Mayor Pete. Uh, listeners of the podcast know my love and affection for Mayor Pete. I was really hoping he would get you an ambassador or maybe even U.S. trade uh, representative, which has also been taken. I am, uh, we are hearing, people are saying that uh, Pete will be the pick for ambassador to China, which I am in love with that pick. I think it's a great pick. I think uh, it gets Pete a lot of um, uh, foreign policy experience, which is something that he was lacking in the 2020, in the, yeah, in the 2020 uh, primary. Um, it puts him on a national stage. China's going to be the most important country that we're dealing with for the next number of years. Um, and also, I think the symbolism and, and the signal that it will show in China, who have had, who had a very uh, uh, oppressed, very much in the shadows, LGBTQ community, to see a gay man come to your country. He represents the United States. He ran for president. I think it will kind of hopefully help those people who are feeling oppressed and in the shadows. So if he gets the ambassador to China role, I think it's a really, really good move for Biden. I think it's a really good move for uh, Pete. Um, Hills, things that stand out to you about these picks. I agree with everything you just said. You're gonna, Biden is choosing people who have experience. He's choosing people who are, I mean, the most diverse cabinet, I think, in, in history of the United States. I, I would think so. Yeah. Um, and who are experienced. And, I mean, everyone should have confidence in them. I mean, I don't know all of them inside and out, so I can't tell you they're going to be <laughs> for scandal-free. I mean, I hope they will be. But it's going to be people who actually care about the jobs in the roles, unlike people who are in the administration now who just are trying to change the rules to make it better for themselves. And on Mayor Pete, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm hoping he does get a position of that will build his resume because – Right now, he is a failed presidential candidate and the former mayor of a large, small city, right? So, like, like he, he, he run for governor in Indiana is pretty hard, senator or anything. So his options are limited. But if Biden puts him in a good position, he can come back and doesn't need to run for, like, a national office. He can have some experience on his own. So I think, I think giving him something that will help him in the future is going to be really beneficial to Pete. So I really... I'm really hoping that he gets ambassador to China or somewhere else that will give him really good uh, foreign policy experience. Yeah, and it, it's it's hard because it's hard for him to he can't run for Senate. He he would he would not win as senator from Indiana, and also the district that he's in um, is also a very Republican district. He can't even get into the House. So it's the chance to get him some foreign policy chops and build up his resume. Um, Hills, I have a question for you. When do you think Biden's going to give roles to Ashley and Hunter Biden? Will they work together to solve peace in the Middle East or they have a different role? <laughs> I'm just wondering when he's going to start appointing his children to run parts of the White House. Well, I believe I believe he already appointed them to the Burisma board. <laughs> um, 
and he's creating a new company called Biden and Co. And um, they're going to go out and sell products for for him, right? Perfect. Okay. As long as, as Ashley Biden holds Goya beans in, in, in the Oval Office, that, then I think it'll be okay. <laughs> well, we we, <laughs> we both know that Hunter Biden's going to sell laptops. He's going to be a laptop seller. Yeah, that's true. Secondhand um, MacBooks. <laughs> um, all right, so we should talk a few a, a little bit for about about Biden's criticisms and challenges for his cabinet. So we've already said this is by far the most uh, diverse cabinet that we have seen so far in the United States. Uh, but the NAACP and other progressive groups are keep they keep pushing back on Biden and his picks. They say that they want more diversity, especially. Uh, in the top posts, they want more progressive candidates. They want more diverse candidates, um, and so Biden has to walk this tough balance. You know, it's this rope that he has to walk. He wants to hire competent people who can do the job, and he doesn't just want to hire people because of their race. He wants to hire good people who can do the job, and um, but you know, he he knows that he's getting pushed back from these progressive groups, and he's acknowledged that he said like their job is to push me, and I want to be pushed. So he's handling it well. I think progressive groups should back off just a little bit. Like, you know, he, we have a Democrat in the White House. Let's give him the staff that he wants. And if we're not happy with the results of the staff, we're not happy with what you think they're doing, then we can push him more, choose more progressive candidates. But I think let's let's start off. Let's let's give him the candidate that he wants. Mills, what are your thoughts? I completely agree with you. Biden is not going to make everyone happy. And it's not his job to make everyone happy, frankly. I think Biden, you have to appreciate what he's trying to do, though. He has the most diverse cabinet known to the United States. That is saying trillions and trillions more than what Trump has done. So, like, he's not going to hit every group. He's not going to get everyone what they want. But you're going to have, hopefully, as as much effort as you can towards a diverse, competent, and well-experienced cabinet— but you know what? If you don't get what you want, at least it's better than Trump. And then you start working with the Biden administration. Like, it's not that hard. People are making this like they're so upset about this. It's like we spent four years under Trump and people got killed. People got deported. Children were separated. It's time to think past like you're pissed off that someone that you wanted, you know, in a cabinet post didn't get it. Or that you didn't get a cat position. And let me just, I'm going to hate on on Warren for just a second. I love Elizabeth Warren, but she's pissing me off a little bit. So Biden, so Warren came out in strong support of Janet Yellen, which will be a wonderful secretary of treasury. I was like, this is great. Uh, Warren has come out against, hard against General uh, Lloyd Austin. So General Lloyd Austin, a four-star general, he is only four years removed from the military, and you're supposed to be seven years removed from military, um, from military, uh, before you can be Secretary of Defense. If you're not seven years, you, it requires a waiver. Only two waivers have been granted in U.S. history, and the latest one was Jim Mattis. Uh, they, they, uh, the Senate overwhelmingly granted Mattis. I think he was supposed to be a check on Trump. So, you know, we'll see how, how that worked out. And now Warren is saying that she will not support a waiver for General Austin because she's worried about the precedent it, it would set. But she had no problem voting for that 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 warrant um, for Mattis. So just stop. <laughs> like, just give Biden who he wants. We already have an uphill 
climb in the Senate as, as is. You don't need Democrats coming out and being pissed off at Biden for not checking all their boxes. Just, just give him the cabinet he wants. Let him get to work. Let him solve this problem. He's the party leader. You should be behind him. And then if we're not happy with the results, then you take your case to the American people and you tell them to push, to push Biden. You know, push for more progressive candidates running in, in, uh, in Congress. You push on those ways, but you don't just say, I'm going to hamstring the president of my party, right? Uh, unless he's choosing some ludicrous, you know, position on it. I, 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 if Biden's going to announce that he wants Ludacris the rapper to be Secretary of Defense, then yes, okay, you, you should fight against that. But here, here's a four-star general who gained Biden's trust in the Situation Room when uh, he and Biden worked together for in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Someone the president and the head of your party trust deeply, and you're going to come out and say that that you're not going to give him a waiver because you're upset with you know, there aren't enough progressive candidates that Biden didn't choose you yet to run um, uh, an office. Like, get over yourself. I'm just I'm very upset with uh, Warren right now. <laughs> it sounds like you're you're not happy with her. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. At least. I know. I see what you're saying. I totally see what you're saying. And I I think, you know, it's it's incumbent on Biden to try and. Like, people are politicians at the end of the day, right? Even the best of us, right? So if you come out really hard for Biden and he doesn't reward you in the political sphere, you're going to be pretty pissed off that you did all that work and you're not getting thanked in a way that you thought you would. So Biden needs to figure out, you know, he's a relationship guy. How do you how do you adequately thank these politicians who really maybe did a lot for you, maybe did something for you? How do you thank them without giving them a cabinet post? And that's not something I know the answer to, but something he's probably going to yeah. need to know the answer to in order to get like the Warren thing. She's just trying to save face a little bit just because maybe she feels like she got insulted. I don't know. But whatever the case, there's probably going to be more people like that, including probably probably Bernie Sanders. But Biden is going to have to figure that out. How do you how do you salvage a relationship when you don't give someone like a big post when they were expecting it? So I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think it's a big I don't think it's the biggest deal. I mean, we have to fix what Trump did. Let's just end, let's end this segment by, by saying that, you know, we don't know the results of the Georgia Senate yet. We don't know who's going to control the Senate or the House. But if Biden gets the team that he wants, the amount of good that this team can do by just being in charge of these positions is, is it's, it, it's, it's a huge amount of good that they can do. And we can start to undo some of the crazy policies that we've um, been dealing with and just kind of restore a competent government, which doesn't sound like like much, but given what we've been through, it, it's going to mean a lot. So we're going to really see a change, especially two years into the Biden administration, that these people know what they're doing. Speaking of changes, let's uh, go to our deep dive, just coming up right now. Welcome to your Andre today, and this segment we're going to be covering. 2020, the 2020 election deep dive. We're going to be talking about states, counties, and people. So we'll be diving in and talking about all the different stats, how each of these categories ended up in the 2020 election, and what they mean going forward. So let's start with states, number one. So Sabato's crystal ball, and he is a political um, analyst out of the University of Virginia, 
Um, they have a small team there, and they're all political scientists and, you know, know political junkies, and they know um, statistics and all that good stuff. They did an excellent analysis on the Democrats to Republican vote share in 2016 versus 2020, and the trend of more or less, you know, have states become more or less Democratic between 2000 and 2020. So I'm going to link this in the show notes so you can look at all about it yourself, but I'm going to sum it up and give you a little bit of analysis here. According to their analysis, Biden did 2.5% better than Clinton did in 2016. And, um, you know, they used that 2.5% benchmark and they applied it to, you know, the, the vote share of did Biden do better than 2.5%, better than Clinton in all these states, or did he do worse than 2.5% in all these states? And what they found was Biden exceeded that in mostly red states. So 2016 states went so red that Biden actually improved on it a little bit. I mean, these states were red, like Nebraska, right? But he Biden did win the Nebraska first district. So all these red states got a little bit less red in 2020, but they were still, I mean, it's kind of like you're in a 30-foot hole. And instead of doing 30-foot feet down again, you went up to like 20, right? So you're still in the hole. You're just less in the hole. So... <laughs> <laughs> Also, there are some blue states got a little bit redder just because, you know, Hillary Clinton did so well in those blue states in 2016 that it was hard for Biden to repeat it, especially because there have been some shifts towards Trump. However, some bad news for us. Many state, you know, many Dem states didn't match that 2.5 percent. Um, the Republican share of the vote went up. This includes, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Nevada, Florida. Those are the swingiest states that, you know, the Republican vote share went up. Reliable states like New York, New Jersey, Hawaii, and New Mexico, they went up just a little bit. Like the Republican vote share just went up a little bit. I mean, they were still pretty Democratic, but like they were a little bit closer than they were in 2016. Even further, the study took a look in the geographical regions across the United States from 2000 to 2020. So here's what they saw. The interior west, like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, got super red. They got a lot more redder uh, over the last 20 years. The Southwest was mixed with Colorado and Arizona going blue. Nevada, slightly redder over the course of 20 years. The upper Midwest, which is like <laughs> the upper Midwest, which is like all the states that we care about, like Michigan, Ohio, <laughs> Iowa, uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, they all went very GOP over the last 20 years. And since 2016, 2016 was a big jump for a lot of these states in, the, in that area of the country. Appalachia and the Rust Belt, you know, they trended vastly GOP, especially in the last four years. They were trending Democrat up to 2020, 2012, and they, you know, just Trump brought something out in those states. Virginia and Georgia went heavily for the Democrat over the last 20 years, while the rest of the Southeast trended, Republic, trended Republican. Pennsylvania what has gone extremely Republican over the last 20 years. And that's something that's probably going to continue over the next 20 years, too. And lastly, all of the Northeast went for the Dems. They have trended Democratic over the last 20 years. And that's a good thing. Before I bring you in, Josh, I just want to say, you know, this means that Trump's Republican surge from 2016 maintained in 2020 as stuff that we may have known but it's it's just shown in the data now right all these lean right states became very right states that's not saying that they won't ever turn back to the center but we're we're in a hole now we're in a we're in a big hole with a lot of these states 
And it's not the best trend for Dems. I mean, Trump got the GOP out in mass, and it's up to us to win a higher share of the vote, white vote, frankly, because these states that have trended more Republican, a lot of their population is, is overwhelmingly white. So we have to appeal with them with hope and good policy. Josh, what are your thoughts about the states? Whew, man, you know, my initial reaction is, oh, shit. <laughs> um, Same. You know, I mean, I uh, I read um, Larry Sabato's story as well. And, you know, I just it would just seem like it was bad news after bad news after bad news. Um, I mean, you know, it's good that Georgia is going heavy dem, but, you know, Democrats have their work cut out for them and they've got to win back these white working class votes that Obama won in 2008 and 2012. You got to find a way to win them back. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Uh, that or the Electoral College has to go. But um, it doesn't seem super likely yet. So my initial reaction is just that Dems have their work cut out for them. And, it, and it, it's tough and you're going to have to find a way to, um, you know, uh, to get your word out. And like you said, fill these voters with hope. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I was looking at those charts too. And between 2000 and 2012, a lot of these states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, I mean, Obama blew out Wisconsin. He got like 6% in Wisconsin. They were trending Democratic up until Trump. And it's not just Trump that appealed to these maybe, you know, white working class areas of the country that have felt economic disempowerment. It's it's also the Democrats message to them, right? This didn't have to be this way. But between media and everything else, you have a lot of these states trending Republican. It's not good. <laughs> well, but you you also look at look at 2018, right? Tony Evers wins in Wisconsin. Gretchen Whitmore wins in Michigan. There's a pull, like there there is strength there, right? You have to just find out what that message is. And clearly, Tony Evers and Gretchen Whitmore and and you know Biden did did just enough. To win a few of those people over, to win a, to win a small portion of those Republicans, those never Trumpers, you know, to win enough over to just barely eke out a victory, and that that has to be a wake up to them saying like, look, if Trump didn't get COVID, or if COVID wasn't nearly as bad as it had been, you know, then Biden's looking at getting blown out, right? And right. this has to be a wake up call for Dems and say, look, now is the time to like really do a look at like, okay, you know, what are we doing wrong and what is our message to these voters and how do we reshape that so that in two years we're not looking at a Republican House and a Republican Senate. That we're looking at Dems holding on to one or both of those and what do we need need to fix in the next year and a half? And and I really think Hills and I think Biden was spot on. There was leaked audio of him where he said that the defund the police message has been killing Dems. Uh, and so he asked activists to lay off that message until we have the Georgia um, Senate runoff in uh, January. And he's absolutely right. Democrats are getting, are, are getting slammed by that because you have these white working class people in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan who are saying, oh my gosh, I don't want the police to go away. I rely on the police. You know, I, the police in my community are good. I, my dad or my uncle or my brother or my mother or my sister or whoever is a, is a police officer. 
right? And 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 I don't want them to lose their job. And and you know that that message has hurt Democrats. I think it really, really has. So and and, and I'm not I'm not coming out in support for or against defunding the police. I just think that you know the word defund has such a negative connotation. Democrats need to do a better job of messaging and saying, look, we're not taking money away from police officers. We're making their job easier. We're trying to save police officers' lives. We're trying to say, look, when you go to an incident uh, at, at, at home, bring along a social worker. Bring along a mental therapist, right? We're trying to make your job easier, right? But they just got trapped behind the defund the police message that Republicans just did what they, they, did what they do well. They take messaging and they, they ram it down your throat. And so all you heard was Biden and the Democrats want to defund the police and are in favor of socialism. And that scares off white voters. And that's that that's why these these states are trending Republican and it's Democrats' job to win them back. You're exactly right. And it drowns out the Democrats the Democrats' message of, you know, healthcare, right? If the only thing people hear about your candidacy is something negative and something they're not they don't understand, you're going to drown out the positive aspects of why they should support Democrats. Right. And and, 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 and what did Democrats run on in 2018 that allowed them to win? It was health care because there was no other, other message. It was just Democrats did a really good job in 2018 of ramming health care down your throat. Right. And Republicans are going to take away your health care. And it led to a, a wave election in suburbs and in the House. You know, Democrats had, had, you know, overtook the House, had this big margin and stuff. And what happened in 2020, the message shifted from health care to socialism and defund the police. And it hurt Democrats. So they had to work on their, their, their messaging for sure. Yeah, you can imagine another election where we talked about how Democrats passed this, 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 and this bill. And guess who was stopping it from of, of you getting the benefits? The Republicans. We just didn't do it. We didn't do it. And, and Trump is a cult of personality. And he got these... These voters out in these states. So that's states. So let's talk about counties. <laughs> and I'll, I'll go a little slower on this one. So Biden won at least, and I say at least just because some of the results and everything, 509 counties, which is a bit more than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And it also represents 17% of American counties. So Biden only won 17% of American counties. However, those 17 count, 17% accounts for more than 71% of the U.S. economic activity. So let me just say that again. Biden won 509 counties, which is 17% of all American counties. And that represents 71% of the U.S. economic activity, which is huge and very deeply telling for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Democrats are sorely, sorely, sorely lacking in rural, rural areas of the country. And those with the least hope are the ones voting for Republicans. These rural counties are the ones that are going to benefit from a Democrat being in the in office and, and passing legislation the most. So this is a huge, huge, huge messaging problem. If you have the least, the least wealthy areas of the country voting against a party that's meant to go help the least wealthy, you have a huge problem. Also, Dems in Congress, you know, just won about 17% of the land area in, in the country as well, underscoring how densely packed Democrats are to cities and suburbs, which is not a bad thing, but we're missing the rural areas of the country, which should be, we can have messages for them. It's been done before. We can do it again. It doesn't have to be this way. We need to go out in rural areas because we need to get more and more seats. If we're going to have impactful change, we need to reach out to the 
the uh, at this point 29% of the less uh, economic activity in the country, and we need to tell them why they should support us rather than the Republicans. So that is that is a, a a huge one. Josh, you have any thoughts there? You're right. the The problem Democrats have is <laughs> the people that need us to, you know, protect your union, protect your job, right? Aren't voting for us, and that's a big problem. Um, you know, you're right. I think you you, you summed it well there by Hills saying that there's nothing stopping Dems from winning the rural areas, and you're absolutely right. We just don't. <laughs> we just we just don't. <laughs> so here here are a few more stats to underscore what we're talking about here, which all can be concerning. And these are all courtesy of Dave Wasserman. And all of these things that I'm about to say are in the show notes. So if you're interested, go swipe left or right on the podcast app and you can go click and, and look for yourself. Number one, Biden won the presidency winning 79% of counties with Lululemon stores and only 19% of counties with tractor supply company stores. Biden won the presidency, winning 85% of counties with a Whole Foods. But he only won 32% of counties with a Cracker Barrel, which is the widest gap ever when looking at this data. The most counties flipping to blue for you know this election from red were suburbs or exburbs, you know, wealthy, educated people who are a white-collar working professionals. Most counties flipping red this election, blue-collar union counties, Hispanic uh, majority counties, especially along the border, and obviously more rural counties. So what does this all mean? The Dems and Republicans are making inroads with each other's usual constituencies here. Dems used to own rural areas not too far ago in a distant past, (laughs) while the GOP used to run it up in the wealthy, educated suburbs. And we have growing population in cities, but we're narrowing our coalition for no reason and narrowing our chance in the Electoral College and both houses of Congress for no reason. We cannot win both houses of Congress or the Senate without rural America. We need to have them with us because they will pad and expand the majority. And our message with blue-collar blue Americans right now are the, is terrible. And we are the, they're the ones who are gonna, we're going to help, help the most. So this is, this is not that hard to fix, and we need to fix it now. Yeah, and I think, Hills, you know, the, the Hispanic counties flipping red is another big concern. And we've talked on this podcast our concern about Biden uh, with the Hispanic population. And Trump winning the Hispanic population, again, it makes no sense. Trump is deporting immigrants, right? He's separating children from, from parents. He's putting them in cages. He called Mexicans rapists and and drug lords, and and yet you have Hispanic. And I know not all Hispanic people are are uh, you know Mexican, but 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 you know it's just it's it's just it's insulting and 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 he's and he's you're voting for someone in a party that is against your overall interests, and it's on Democrats to come up with a message for why should you support us, not just because we're not Donald Trump. You're exactly right. And we're going to get into the Hispanic community a little bit more and about what they have and, 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 and haven't done. But I mean, when you have a problem in your hands, when most of the counties flipping red were mostly along the Texas border, right? Yep. I mean, that, that's, you, Hillary Clinton crushed in those counties in 2016. Oh, all right. So we did states 
and we did counties, and now we got people. And I'm kidding. I, I ran a, I looked at a lot of exit polls, and it's all from the Brookings Institution and the Washington Post. And again, all my sources are in the show notes, so you can go check them out yourself. Let's start with white voters. <laughs> um, <laughs> white voters are still historically high for Trump, especially in the red states. However, Biden made substantial gains with the largest and most present voting bloc across the country, which are the white voters. He went up around 3 to 5% nationally. And in the swing states, um, educated whites and women swung even further in his favor by significant margins. Um, even non-college whites, Biden either helped Trump, held Trump steady or made small gain, you know, gains in that, in that subsection with men. While the gains were small, it really, I mean, being the white population is the largest population uh, of voting bloc in the country. It helped offset other areas of support where Trump did a little bit better. And it honestly pushed him over the top in some places. So because he got more white voter support than Hillary did in 2016, he was able to, to you know, win these really tight states like Arizona. Josh, you have any thoughts on that? I think the crucial point that you made, Hills, is that these small, I mean, you know, we've talked about this, the small inroads that Biden can make with white educated men and with uh, white women as well does, it does push those narrow states like Georgia and Wisconsin over the line for Biden. So those are crucial inroads that Democrats should look at and figure out how can we keep expanding on that message? Yeah, no, it's, it's for sure. It's, it's something that we have to, we must. So, the next one are black voters. And we talked about this repeatedly on the podcast before that Biden needed to do better with, with black voters. And by overwhelming margins, Biden did. They delivered Biden's win. Black men and women were over 80% of, of black men and women voted for, voted for Biden. And, you know, sometimes overwhelmingly more than that. However, Trump made inroads, especially with black men. Trump rose by at least five points nationally with black men. And that won't win elections. However, Democrats really rely on black support and any loss of you know these these groups of voters is a net positive for the gop if you're if you're taking a core constituency away from a democrat they have to work twice as hard to get the voters back so um you know and that we also saw, saw the same trend with hispanic voters and this is another crucial segment that josh and i both spoke at lengths about and they're not obviously a monolith i mean there's very varying different types of nationalities at play here but biden won hispanics two to one mostly 70%. However, Trump really did much better with Hispanic communities countrywide. Most of the pro-Trump swings were in Texas, almost all of them on, as we said, the Hispanic border with Mexico, Miami-Dade County in Florida, home to oh, many God. Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and, and Hispanic communities of all type, gave Biden just a 16-point edge. That is a devastating figure for a county that has given Dems over a 30% margin in past elections. And in Florida overall, Trump was only down six points with Hispanics, which is a terrible number. I just said Biden won two to, Hispanics two to one. Not in Florida. He won them by just six points. And that is, that is devastating. Trump gained as much as five to six points nationally, which made margins in Nevada, North Carolina, and Florida so much closer. And, you know... I will note this is not an even trend with Hispanics here because Hispanics, like in Arizona, were really crucial to Biden's win. But there was a lot of misinformation out there, and that that really swung hard in Trump's favor. So we want to add one thing. Going back to talk about the African American vote, when Biden met with members of the NAACP and community leaders, 
an activist uh, that were all black. There was a, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but there was a considerable lack of young um, African-American or young Hispanic people. Biden won the older black and Hispanic vote by a very large margin, but it's the young African-Americans and Hispanic uh, voters that he really struggled with. And that's where Trump made inroads on his things like criminal justice. That's where he made those inroads. And so that's another thing. thing is, is like, yes, Biden did well with overall with Hispanics and African-Americans, but it's really that age gap that I know we're going to get to. But the age gap is, is also crucial because if you want the, the more activist votes, you have to reach those younger African-American and Hispanic voters that Biden had a really hard time reaching in 2020. That's exactly right. And we talked about this too. We yep. talked about it, how we should get Beyonce and Jay-Z and any, everyone and anyone out there for them, and, and they didn't do it. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, sorry, look back at 2016, Hillary, even though she lost, had this massive concert with Jay-Z and Beyonce. I know that sounds silly and it sounds like like we're, you know, putting them all in a monolith, but like, you know, that energizes people. And I know you can't do that. And Biden really suffered from his lack of ability to go knocking on doors and holding big rallies. And that's where you get all these young people signed up because they go to a rally and then at the rally, you're there to sign up and you need to register to vote. And that's why Trump holding these rallies was devastating to Biden when we didn't even realize it because when you hold these rallies, you you get people to sign up and register to vote. And Trump registered all these voters by having these massive rallies and Biden's having, you know, either no rallies or very, very small ones. And, it, you know, it comes back to hurt him. And hopefully, you know, in 2022 and 2024, Dems can hold these bigger rallies and realize their, their mistake that, that, that almost cost them the White House in 2020. We need to do something to, to reach people in person or at least have a better surrogate plan, right? About having, you know, making sure your surrogates, like people who are influential in the black community are well-resourced so they can go out and talk to the people and, and make face-to-face contact. So we have two more, we have two more groups before we're done with this section. Um, Asian voters. Um, in very crucial congressional districts, Asian Asian voters delivered important victories to Republicans. Trump overall did about six to seven points better with Asians than in 2016. Asian voters nationally supported Biden by a 27-point margin, which is smaller than the 38-point margin Clinton won with that group four years ago and Obama's 47-point margin in 2012. So this is still, I mean, Asian the Asian American voters, they're... The population percentage of uh, in the public is not overwhelmingly large, but you have to look at certain districts and certain states because you know everything varies. But still, tighter tighter than usual for Asian voters and age. Biden did heed our advice well in one place. Compared to 2016, he gained massively with voters under 30, a surge that definitely helped him to win in certain states. Um, this this. Huge gain was slightly offset with with voters 30 to 44, which uh, went slightly more for Trump. He improved with boomers by five to seven points, and he also improved with people 65 and older, but only by a few points, which is a huge, huge lost opportunity considering Trump's handling of the pandemic. And it honestly was a missed opportunity for the for the Biden campaign there. So the young people did propel <laughs> did propel Biden to win by overwhelming numbers, but. Between a pandemic and such, you know, he, he, he did marginally better with boomers, but he didn't do as well as he could have been. And that's why there wasn't a blowout, because instead of getting five to seven points with boomers, he needed to get, I think, double that with boomers to make it a real wave election. So what does this all mean? 
the shift in white voters definitely helped Biden immeasurably against, you know, less support from some core Democratic constituencies. There is no indication that the white educated swing to Dems will last or the black or Hispanic support will carry over beyond Trump. We just do not know that yet. We need a big, bold message that will inspire hope through policies that are tangible and easy to understand. And we need to drive up youth turnout if we have a chance to win back many of those seats. Everyone take a breath. So I want to focus on one more thing that you said. If listeners are are listening and they're saying, well, okay, uh, Miami-Dade County, right? Biden won it by 15%. Like, that seems pretty good. And you look at the Asian-American votes. Well, Biden won those by 27%, right? And you look at why Democrats did not do very well in the House, right? If Biden's numbers are bigger, like Clinton's numbers or Obama's numbers, right? If Biden's winning Miami-Dade County by 30%, then we're also picking up House seats there, right? So yes, looking at the big picture, Biden's victory was was large, like 15 points, 27 points, like those are large victories. But when you break it down to individual districts and counties that uh, Democrats lost in, like that's part of the reason why is because those victories weren't big enough. Those margins weren't big enough for Biden. I think that's an important point when you're looking at why Democrats you know, lost so many House seats. I think that's extremely well said, Josh. And I will also note to to support what you just said is, you know, I didn't give the, the exit poll number for white voters, which Biden was still in the hole significantly with white voters. Um, even though he did better with white voters, he was still in the hole. And that hole, that, you know, 10 point hole is the and because of the 10 point hole and that white voters represent an overwhelming majority of the electorate in many states is the reason why those 15 points is not enough or the 27 points is not enough, as you were just saying. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you, you look at, but on the flip side, again, look at the macro, look at the bigger level, right? That, that we talked about that small gain that Biden has made, that helped him win the presidency, right? So these small differences of winning Miami-Dade County by 15% or 30%, winning Asian-American voters by 29% or 38%, doesn't seem like, 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 it's very, 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 very small. Like, oh, like, you know, it's only like eight points or that, right? But, you know, think about the inroads that Biden made with white voters, like those very small inroads, it gave him the, the presidency. So I think this is a lot of really good data. I think there's a lot to digest here. And do you want to just copy and paste this over to the Biden team or do you want me to do it? Or how, how, how do we want to give the information to Joe? I'll, I'll send it via PDF file to, to them. <laughs> yeah, and you, you know, like what Josh was just saying with these percentages, this is what consultants look, they do this every day. They are like, if we win this by certain percent, percentage, we can lose this group by certain percent. Like these percentages matter a lot. So, well, thank you for listening to states, counties, and people today. And we're going to go into all about the vaccines. And that's coming up next. So welcome to Life Under Lockdown. We're going to talk about the vaccines to hopefully get us out of lockdown. Let's, so let's go ahead and let's start with the, the big news. The big news is Pfizer. The Pfizer vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine was just recommended and approved by the FDA, which is good. Hooray. Uh, And it's going to start getting out to people next 
week. We can people can start getting shots in their arms uh, on Monday, which is great. I mean, this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the speed that this has been going through uh, is a testament to the scientific and medical community that exists in the United States and around the world. And the fact that they were able to get a vaccine this quickly that is this safe and effective um, is wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, in more good news, uh, there are two more vaccines that are uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca. Uh, they are both also uh, applying to get FDA approval next week. So uh, if you have your choice of vaccine, you want Moderna or Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca is only about 70% effective as opposed to Moderna and Pfizer, which are 94 and 95% effective. Um, now we have to get to some not so good news. The Trump administration came out that they declined a request by Pfizer when Pfizer asked them if they would like to offer to purchase more vaccine load over the summer. The Trump administration said, nah, we're good because Trump had a deal in place with the less effective AstraZeneca vaccine. So Trump made a deal with AstraZeneca. He wanted all of their vaccines. Their vaccine is not as effective. Trump said too bad uh, to Pfizer and Moderna because we're going with this vaccine. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be, uh, we're going to have more doses of a less effective vaccine because Trump is an idiot. So let's pause here for a second. Hills, what are your initial thoughts? Well, hooray, we have a vaccine. <laughs> Multiple vaccines, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> hooray! I mean, it's a, absolutely incredible that we have three vaccines. But I, I, if you ask me which... People always say, take a vaccine no matter which one it is. I don't know. I kind of want the 90% one. <laughs> like, if, if the only vaccine I could ever take ever was the AstraZeneca one, sure, I will, I will take 70% effective rate. But I kind of want 90%, yeah. please. It's it's just un- it's just unfortunate that you know you imagine a scenario where you go to the doctor and you're like hey I'll take a you know the Pfizer vaccine I'm here for my COVID vaccine oh great we have an AstraZeneca version oh don't you have don't you have Pfizer or Moderna oh yeah well you know the president kind of wants us to use AstraZeneca even though it's less effective because it it that's the group he he made a deal with that's the art of the deal Hilsey. he made a deal to screw us that was the deal. That was the art of the deal. And I think the, the big thing that people have to understand is that most of these vaccines, you have to go back two right. times. Right. Like, if you get one shot, you're, you're not good. I mean, you're, you're, you're better than zero, but... Well, the, the information on that is very conflicting. Medical scientists and stuff say you're going to need two vaccines, or you need two doses. And the second dose comes three weeks apart, right? So you have to wait three weeks. Now, the FDA and other agencies have said that the first dose covers you for the most part but you really want that second dose so like you're like obviously you would take one dose over none but there's also no idea no one knows how long this this covers you for is it six months is it a year is it your life like you don't know right so still lots of unknowns but we have a vaccine and uh you know we have it so that there's that now, when this story came out that Trump put this deal in place to get AstraZeneca, Trump signed an executive order calling for the U.S. to receive all vaccines from the companies when they're ready. He said, hey, if you're in the U.S., uh, you have to serve us first. Well, it doesn't really work that way because these companies <laughs> have already made promises to other countries who wanted to buy their vaccine. So he sent this executive order, but it has absolutely no weight behind it uh, because Pfizer's not just going to say, oh, oh, you're right. Okay, here. 
pig ollie vaccine that was going to give to India. Sorry, India, you're screwed. Right now, the good news, hopefully, is that if uh, the Trump administration just purchased a large order of the Moderna vaccines, right, I think it's almost more than double what they put purchased of Pfizer. So if Moderna is just as effective as Pfizer, then that's great. But it's just dumb, dumb decision decision making until his last day in office. <laughs> this is so funny, Josh, for a couple of reasons. So number one, it's just like the executive order is just like a for yeah. show, even though he lost the election. So like <laughs> he could have he should have done this months ago. <laughs> I mean if he if he did it, it wasn't in the news. And the second thing is his supporters are not even gonna fucking get this yeah. vaccine. Like <laughs> the people who are gonna get this vaccine are people who supported <laughs> Biden. Because I mean just on the whole I mean, there are going to be people who most likely didn't support Trump. And so, like, I don't know. He's a, he's the one who, like, made coronavirus political. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no problem before Trump made it a problem. And it was, and now it's a problem because Trump made right. it a problem. Like, like it's just, the GOP does this all the time. It's just kind of funny that he's doing all this stuff now. And he's not, he's not doing it for any benefit other than <laughs> his supporters won't even do, right. get it. Right. right. So Trump has politicized the vaccine so much. Right. And, and here's the other crazy thing that's so funny, I think, is Obama, Biden, Fauci, uh, George uh, W. Bush have all said, uh, Bill Clinton, said they're all going to go and publicly get the vaccine. They're going to show it on TV, right, to show them, the public, that this is safe. But Trump's not publicly getting the vaccine. Who knows if Trump's going to even get the vaccine? Right. If, if, if he wanted to make this a big deal, he would he would hold some big rally and you have a doctor come up and inject him with the virus. And I can guarantee everyone in that rally is going to get a vaccine. But he won't do that because that requires him to, like, you know, look out for the greater good. So besides himself. So he, he, he's not going to do that. And his supporters are going to die. Cause they're not going <laughs> to get the freaking vaccine. <sighs> Josh, do you remember when Trump got COVID? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Do you remember watching him go back to the White House and not being able to breathe on the portico? That was good. The look of terror in his face as he realized he couldn't take a full breath in. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Now, to be fair to the President Hills, we don't know if he couldn't take a full breath in because of COVID or because he was so tired from going up the stairs. So, you know, we should, <laughs> we should be fair. Very good point. All right. Uh, so what, is this, what do these vaccines mean for you and me and the listeners here? Uh, so, bad news, guys. Uh, COVID is not over. Uh, you can still get coronavirus. Uh, the vaccine is not – it's going to take months to get the vaccine to people like you and me. Um and we are in this for the next few months. And the peak of the second wave is going to be some, pro- the projections that I'm seeing is it's going to be January 20th on inauguration day. That's when we'll hit the peak. That's when we're going to have the most cases. We're looking at like two more, or at least another, at least another month, right? Of continuing cases to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. So, you know, we still have to stay home. So have to wear a mask. So have to wash your hands. You know, an insane amount. So I do a lot of stuff because even though doctors, doctors know how to treat coronavirus better, you know, like doctors have a really good idea of what they need to do to, to, um, help save lives with COVID. The problem is with so many people getting it, you are overwhelming the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting the best care because doctors know what to do 
but the resources are so thin and the patients are so many and the amount of doctors that are actually working are getting over are getting overwhelmed and overworked right that you're not getting best quality care when you go to the hospital unless you're the president or Rudy Giuliani right you're not getting the best care right so the best thing for you to do is not to say and I heard I heard a Republican say this, uh, a congressperson say this on a podcast the other day. He said, I hope that I get it. I hope that I get it because I wouldn't want to get it in the spring. Right? But doctors know what they're doing now. They've had, you know, six months to look at, you know, how this, how this uh, virus affects people. And they know what they're doing now. So it, I hope I just get it and I can just get the care that I need and then I'll be fine. And that's just such a dangerous approach to take because... Here's what people need to understand. You are not getting the same health care that a government official is going to get. Like God forbid, Hills, that you and I get, get coronavirus. We can't go to Walter Reed like Trump did and and you know and have doctors around us all the time. But like 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 there are reports of, of, of doctors are turning patients away, saying you're not sick enough to come to the hospital yet. Like you need to stay home. Right, right, right. And, we don't we don't get hospital beds. Right, and, and and who did that person who needs to go to the hospital because they have symptoms, right? Who did that person infect on their way to the hospital? Now they have to go back, right? This is the problem, right? And you know, yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, we are going to get over this, right? But in the meantime, it's so important for people just to stay home if you can, take all the precautions, get COVID testing when you can. Um, and, and, you know, stay, stay safe, everyone. So remember flatten the curve. Remember that one? God. We have to do it again. Yeah. Remember, remember, you know, 30 days south of spread. Remember we want to have, have, have the pews packed by Easter. Remember Jared saying that we want to have this thing under control by, by fourth. We want to be rocking and rolling by the 4th of July. We are, we are rocking and rolling in the wrong way though. The wrong way. So anyways, guys, that is your life under lockdown. He has a sweet dessert coming up for you, and that is coming up right now. Welcome to your dessert today, and we're going to be having some fun. We're going to be talking about when Trump is out of the White House. He's going to be ex-President Trump at, what is it, 12.01 p.m. on uh, January 20th, 2021. How is he going to, what's he going to do when he gets out of the White House? How will he get out? So let's talk about inauguration plans. Josh, yeah, what do you think? Let's talk inauguration. So, uh, Trump has, there are four options that I'm seeing of what Trump could do. Um, the first option is he could do the normal thing and attend the inauguration like every other president does. But you and I both know, that's not going to happen. Nope. Um, <laughs> so let's cross it off the list. Second one is he's going to do a big campaign rally. Uh, to announce his 2024 bid. He might do that. He might just do his big 2024 campaign uh, bid on the day of the inauguration. The third one is he wants to do a big show. He wants to have this big show of him, you know, leaving the White House and getting on Marine One. And, you know, he's going to, on his way down to Florida, he's going to stop at various places and do these little campaign rallies. He's going to end in Margo in Mar-a-Lago. He's going to, you know, basically just wants to put on a show, right, to compete with Biden's inauguration. That, I mean, he might do that as well. The fourth one, 
Christmas. He might just stay in Mar-a-Lago after Christmas. <laughs> like, Hills, he is actually considered just, like, going to Mar-a-Lago for Christmas and, and just not coming back. Sure. <laughs> like, he's just... He's, and then we're going to have, you know, uh, 24 days of... I don't know who's in the... Who, I don't know who's running the White House, but... But it'll, it'll be, be the him. southern the southern white house jesus let him do whatever he what fuck he wants at this point yeah and then the last one is is not is the inauguration plan like so i don't know if i want him at the inauguration hills because he might give biden covid <laughs> intentionally I mean, yeah intentionally he might like you know start shaking hands try to cough on but i mean biden said that he like no joke he's getting the white house disinfected um <laughs> you know i i guess literally what he said um so anyways, Hills, um, what do we think the options are for Trump? You know, it's the inauguration ha- has come and gone, right? What are the things that Trump, what are like four or five things that Trump could do um, after he leaves the White House? So after he leaves the White House, um, I for one think that he is going to hold his own campaign rally and not go to the inauguration. So that's just what I think is going to happen. Um, what is he going to do afterwards? Well, I think he'll definitely put in paperwork to run again in 2024. Whether he put actually, let me rephrase that. I think he's going to announce he's going to run in 2024. I do not think he's going to file the paperwork because when you file the paperwork, you have to do like certain campaign finance laws and like do reporting and all that stuff. And if he actually doesn't want to run, he could just say he will run and not actually file anything. Right, because the supporters don't know any any different. No one's gonna right. know any different. So I think he's gonna immediately do that because he's a he's a loser, and um, I think he'll probably create some sort of Trump news network or he'll like co-op Newsmax or OANN and like become like a big contributor, and so he doesn't have to start something from scratch. Um, he could retire at Mar-a-Lago. I don't think he's gonna retire. I mean, he could. I think he would. He's gonna really love his life just playing golf and uh, <laughs> tweeting. I mean, he's got no responsibilities at that point other than playing golf and tweeting and maybe facing criminal sentences for the stuff he (laughs) will do. I mean, I think also his health is is an issue. I don't know what sort of care he'll get at Mar-a-Lago. He'll probably pretty good care, but he's not a well man, both psychologically and physically. I mean, he he just isn't. So, Hills, Hills, let me ask you a a, a, a real question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happens if what happens if, if Trump, who is 74 years old, what happens if he goes to Mar-a-Lago and he just dies like a year later? <laughs> like, like, it could happen, man. I, I, listen, it won't be because of the stress of the offices. <laughs> that on him. He has no stress. I think Trump is probably the least stress. I mean, he's maybe somewhat stressed, but in terms of the job responsibilities, I don't think he's felt one stress day at all i think he was more stressed about tweeting than he was about the job i mean he could honestly look presidents have left office and died a few short years later so there is there is chance he could he could pass in the next couple of years yeah i mean god if if yeah i mean his health he's not a healthy person as you said he'll both in his mind and in his body so um, (laughs) his body is not a temple (laughs) (laughs) It's more like, <laughs> oh God! It's more like a shanty town. <laughs> His body is a fast food restaurant. <laughs> that's exactly to McDonald's, but an old McDonald's, not like oh, a new God, one. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they don't have any, any of the fancy menu things. Like, the old-fashioned, there's not even a drive-thru. You have to just walk in. <laughs> you, get, you get a Big Mac, and that, that, that's it. That's all you get. And a filet of fish. Yeah, and the, the floors are sticky for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> Your shoe makes that crink, crink, Yeah, crink, yeah. Crink. <laughs> Josh, wh- why is this all going to matter after he's oh, gone? God. The reality is that Trump, as we've seen in the past four years, Trump continues to control the Republican Party. Uh, and they continue to pledge their loyalty to their leader. You know, until we have any evidence that that's going to stop, um, we have every reason to believe that Trump will control the Republican Party. Because um, I agree with you. I think he's going to announce that he's going to run in 2024, whether he actually does start or not is a different um, thing. But all the Trumpers who want to run for office, like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Ivanka, uh, Don Jr., Mike Pence, Josh Hawley, like all these people um, who want to run, Trump's going to try and hold them off as long as possible. And say, and he's gonna just, you know, he'll say, "I'm going to run," and he won't file the paperwork, and he wants to just hold everyone off because he wants to see who else is gonna get in the race, who's going to defy dear leader and announce that their their presidency. He wants to hold off, you know, Tim Scott and uh, Nikki Haley. Like he, he's gonna hold off on this as long as possible because if no one says they're going to run, and it's we're looking at like 2023 and no one's announced, he's just gonna say, "Screw it, I'm gonna do it." Uh, I think he wants to hold off the competition as long as possible. Um, and the sad reality is that even if he doesn't run, right, even with him being out of office, right, his influence, his voice, and his tweets are all going to be heard and carry weight in the Republican Party. Some GOP congressman or senator, I forgot who it was, one of them said um, that Trump, (laughs) such a ridiculous comment, (laughs) That Trump's going to have his finger on the pulse of what's going, of what bills are going through Washington. Oh, please. (laughs) Can you just imagine this GOP senator, you know, a bill gets called up on the floor and he, and he has to excuse himself because he's got to run to the bathroom and call, you know, the dear leader and and, and be like, hey, should I vote for this? Or, or hey, let me send you some faxes of what the Democrats are putting through. (laughs) It's just so stupid. But unfortunately, um, I do think he's going to continue to have influence and a voice and a say in the greater Republican politics. And I think what will be really funny is, let's say he, he let's say you're, what you, what you said, Hill, is that he enjoys his retirement and decides that he's not going to run for office. People are going to ask him to come and do rallies and stuff. And he'll I don't know if he's going to do it. Because, I mean, he, he may, but... The rally is going to be all about him. <laughs> like he's not good at, um, you know, you know, uh, praising other people. So it'd be really interesting if he doesn't run. You know, I'm sure he'll get invited to the uh, RNC. I'm sure he'll have a, you know, the prime speaking slot there. But I don't think he's going to do a lot of rallies for the people because he doesn't care about anyone but himself. Oh yeah, I mean, whoever whoever he does rallies for is going to have to praise him. Like, it's going to be so interesting, especially when he gets invited to the RNC. Like, if there's another nominee, it's their night, not right. Trump. Oh, but he'll make he'll make it all about him. Right, right, and and will that like, I don't know if Trump says if he if the nominee gets into a spat with Trump and Trump says this guy's no good, he's a phony. Can right. you imagine that? Like, 
they created this monster. They could have impeached him in 2017. They decided not to. So they got to live with him. Here's my last question for you for the video. Okay. Yeah. Let's say for whatever reason, let's say Trump decides to run as a third party candidate in 2024. Okay. Let's say that it's, let's say it's, it's the Democratic candidate, it's the Republican candidate, and it's Trump as a third party. What percent of the vote do you think Trump gets running as a third-party candidate in 2024? Hmm, that's a great question. I think Trump gets almost 30. I think he probably gets like 28% of the vote. Wow, okay, that's higher than me. I, I said he, he gets in the 20 to 22% range. Okay, I mean, that's. I think that's very possible, too. I think... I think between, I definitely under 30, but not under 20. Yes, I think he definitely, someone said, someone posed a question on Twitter and someone said like, uh, anywhere from 5 to 15%, I'm like, you got to go higher than that. Oh, much higher. <laughs> He's getting more than that, yeah. I mean, if you think think about the Republican Party, if, you know, that's about half, half or more of the Republican Party, if the Republican Party is 50 or 48 or 49, and you were giving him 30 25. I mean, that's a substantial part of the party. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That was your dessert. We have your uh, pre-dinner shot answer coming up right now. I know you've been waiting for your pre-dinner shot question, so let me repeat it to you one more time. As of 8 p.m. Eastern Time on December 11th, what is the win-loss count for Trump's post-election lawsuits? It is he's won one case, and he's lost 57 cases. <laughs> the only case that he won was about accepting ballots after a certain deadline in Pennsylvania. So it was like it was like restricting the ballots that can be counted after a certain point in Pennsylvania. And that was the only that was it. Every other lawsuit, every lawsuit since he has lost handily in court. No fraud was proven. There was no there was proven that there was no legal standing in at least 57 se- separate cases. He's lost every single other case. Hills, if I may, Trump's percent success rate, uh, his success rate percentage in uh, these cases is 1.75%. It's pretty terrible. Yeah, pretty it's, terrible. it's not great. And one case that he, he won in Pennsylvania, they were already doing that. They already had, had separated these ballots that were coming in late. They already had separated them and had not counted them, right? So, so they were already doing that, right? <laughs> So, so, so you won a case where the Pennsylvania electors were already doing what you wanted them to do. Congratulations. Congratulations. I mean, 57 losses. And that includes the Supreme Court denying that Texas lawsuit. I mean, just Biden should be out there every single day repeating this to people because you have to counter the narrative. At the end of the day, this is like this is real propaganda and you have to show people how absurd the propaganda is. 57 losses. Right. There's no fraud. And, and and you also, it's also, it, it's going to fall on Republicans eventually. Republicans have to take some responsibility and be like, look, it's just embarrassing. You had 57 lawsuits and like at some point we just have to just accept that Biden won and we have to figure out like what we're going to do going forward. So I agree. It's, it's on Democrats. It's also on Republicans, but you can't count on the Republicans. So falls to the Democrats. Hills, I want to um, before we go. I wanted to say one thing that just came out. Bill Pascrell Jr., mm-hmm. uh, who is a Democratic uh, 
member from New Jersey has put out a, uh, I don't even know what, what, what you'd call this. He uh, basically is demanding that the 126 House members that signed to overturn the election, he says that Nancy Pelosi should not seat them in Congress. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how he can do that. I don't know if that's possible. I don't know what that looks like, but I am here for it, Hills. I'm here for it, too. And if Nancy Pelosi was anything like Mitch McConnell, she would do it. <laughs> can Can Nancy Pelosi just not seat people? Um, I think she can, like, make... I don't. I think she will eventually have to seat them because it, their elections weren't fraud. But she could probably make them make them sweat a little bit and be like, "All right, I'm going to seat you now," and like make some grumblings. We just know. I just. I'm a little wary just because like every time we do something, the Republicans then blow it out of proportion. They don't like give a proportional response. And so if we do, what if we do that and then they like. <laughs> literally don't seat our people next time so i'm i don't know yeah no yeah i, I want it to happen though i want I, I want them to not seat the republicans but yeah yeah <laughs> well thank you all for listening today uh we had a really great episode and before you go we have a few important messages for you the intro and the outro music is by brett hillsberg and the transition music is by joseph mcdade if you enjoy this episode, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. It will help us a lot. Leave us a written review if you like us. If we get five or more reviews, it will make the show turn up for more and more people. So please write something about us. If you have any questions, email us at threecoursepolitics at gmail.com. That's it for today, folks. We covered a lot today, Hills. It was a good episode. It was a, it was a great episode. So thank, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Bye, everyone. Bye.